This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. You know, I had another honor of sorts yesterday. Yesterday I was in Fayetteville for my daughter Elizabeth's college graduation and got to see her walk across that stage. It made a dad very proud, also made my wallet smile. (laughs) I saw many of you there as well. And, uh, you know, as hundreds of these young men and women uh, sat in uh, Bud Walton Arena with their cap and ground, one of the speakers reminded everyone in the audience there that we often think of the graduation experience and that elaborate ceremony that we were about to go through together as an end. It was a, we think of it as a time of finishing, of completion. And yet uh, the speaker who was there reminded everyone in the audience that that great moment, this great celebration is actually called commencement. And in making that statement, he just reminded everyone, really graduation is not about ending at all. It's really about a new beginning of life. Uh, It's only a beginning. It's really in some ways the real beginning. And the reason I say that is because oftentimes when we think of prophecy, when we think of the word prophecy, it oftentimes unfortunately becomes synonymous with the end. Don't you think of that? That prophecy and end times kind of go together as one and the same. And yet the reality is, is prophecy is not about the end. It's only about a beginning. Christians are often called fatalists because they they seem to project, at least in the eyes of many, that the world is hurtling to this kind of catastrophic end. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times not long ago where evangelical Christians in particular were singled out as being annihilationist. And uh, in making that statement, the Times even mentioned that that was, that was even kind of a dangerous perspective to have because of how we think of the world coming to an end. But, you know, I want you to know this morning as we open up to Daniel, you need to be very careful. And uh, when we think about what we mean by prophecy, yes, we believe as Christians, at least as Orthodox Christians, that the world is coming to an end. And in that end, there will be a, a way of wrapping up human history that brings on a terrifying tribulation. But we need to stop just for a moment and remind ourselves that war has always been the fabric of human history, hasn't it? I mean, forget the Christians for a moment. As long as man's heart is the way he is, until that somehow dramatically changes, war will be always a part of the fabric of human existence. We're in a war right now. We're blowing up and killing people right now. And many of those deaths are absolutely tragic. But at the same time that we say that and as we look into the Scriptures and see this kind of terrifying conclusion of sorts, let us also understand that no, we don't believe that that is the end of everything and the end of human existence. If prophecy says anything, prophecy speaks of a commencement, of a new beginning, of a kingdom that's eternal, a kingdom in which righteousness reigns, a kingdom in which, believe it or not, war will end And does your heart not long for that? Don't you yearn for that? A kingdom in which those who live honorable lives will be honored. A kingdom of healing, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of virtue, 
a kingdom in which righteousness reigns. That's really what Daniel is presenting. If you look at his prophecies, I want to look on the screen here and just kind of summarize how he's shown us human history exists. You know, he has talked to us about great time periods. Of course, the two great time periods we're most familiar with and we talked about last time was this time period that we just simply break up between B.C. and A.D. or Old Testament and New Testament with the center post of history being his history, and that is Jesus Christ's history. But then starting in Daniel 9, we're introduced to another time period. It's really where from Daniel 9 all the way to the end of the book of Daniel we've been focused on. It's called in the book of Daniel the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year time period in which God is bringing all of human history into focus and a condensed focus in these last seven years it speaks of where then human history as we know it will come to an end and then we will commence into a new beginning. And part of that ending revolves around the last three and a half years. Remember, and even in the day in the book of Daniel, we'll see that last three and a half years is kind of the focus where Israel is suddenly the picture of the world. It's the place in which all the events of the world finally culminize. Everybody focuses on Israel all the nations of the world, the great world ruler that we'll talk about a little later, and you have this time period of three and a half years that the Bible calls tribulation. At the end of that tribulation is a moment that we call Armageddon. And Armageddon is the cataclysmic last event in which all the nations of the world get involved with this one nation. And life as we know it suddenly ends with kind of two events, at least we talked about these two events at the end, if you are where I am. And that is one, that R&R, rapture and resurrection. And at the same time that's taking place and the saints of God are being lifted out, Jesus Christ is returning at that same moment. And as he returns and joins with the saints of both the Old and the New Testament, he commences a time period that is incredible, a new beginning. It starts with a period of time we're going to see in the book of Daniel of 75 days that revolve around the cleansing of the earth and awards that are given to his saints, those people who in faith lived honorable lives because they believed that all of this life is simply a preparation for another whole existence. And that whole different existence occurs in this, what we call a new world of righteousness. Now, we're not going to go into this today, but, but uh, theologians can break this new world of righteousness down into two parts. At least some believe it's two parts. One is what they call the millennial reign of Christ on earth, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, then followed by a new heavens and new earth. But then there are some who, for one reason or another, believe that uh, the millennial reign of Christ is occurring now and that new world of righteousness is only going to be a new heavens and new earth. So regardless of whether you're what they call amillennial, that means you don't believe in a millennial reign, or that you're premillennial, you'll believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. We all agree, all Christians of all times believe that after the second coming of Christ, there will commence a new world, a new world in which righteousness will reign. Now, having shown you that, I want you to now turn over to the book of Daniel, starting in Daniel chapter 10. And we're going to move pretty quick because we're actually going to look at three chapters that fit together, Daniel 10, 11, and 12. We're going to start in Daniel 10 and introduce you to the central figure of all these prophecies, who in a sense doesn't say anything, but reigns over these last three chapters. He is the figure of these last three chapters. So look in chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 4. 
says, and on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, this is Daniel speaking, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes like the flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw this vision. While the men who were with me did not see it, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. And as they ran away to hide themselves, what you'll see in the verses that follow, really the rest of chapter 10, is then an angel appears to Daniel while this great man stands before him and begins to give them the visions that fall out in Daniel 11 and 12. Now, I want to stop just for a moment and go back to verse 4. Notice this man who's dressed in linen who doesn't really say anything, but he's a very unique and uh, mysterious figure. He's not named in any of the book of Daniel, but he's described here as this giant, this giant transparent jewel. And he will be in these chapters all the way through to the end, and he'll in fact be introduced to us again at the end of chapter 12. Now, who is this person? whose presence is felt. Well, it's not mentioned, as I said, but 700 years later, 700 years later, as you close out the New Testament, as you open up the book of Revelation, this same description, the same person appears in chapter 1 of Revelation. And he's described in almost the exact terms, standing there over that great apocalyptic book, Except in this moment, his name is given. He's described this way. As John falls to his face, this magnificent man says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was the one who was dead, but now I am alive. I have the keys of death and hell in my hands. Well, it's not hard to know who that is, is it? It's Jesus Christ the post-resurrected Christ. But here in Daniel chapter 10, 600 years before Jesus Christ appears on the scene, we have what theologians call the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ standing here in the book of Daniel. And he stands here as the presence, the premier presence of these prophetic chapters that are about to spill out. He will be introduced 600 years later by a star over Bethlehem but he's introduced to Daniel here in fear and dread. Now, why is Jesus the pre-incarnate theophany of Christ here in this chapter? And I believe he's here because as disturbing and as terrifying as the visions we'll talk about here in just a few moments are, here's why Jesus is here. Because these prophetic statements are not declaring that history is moving to a sad, inglorious end but that human history is moving towards a great and glorious person. You hear that? A person to whom all of history has been pointing and ultimately will end at his feet with. So here's the pre-existent Jesus Christ standing before Daniel throughout this final vision as the goal and purpose of human existence. And he's standing there and then the angel comes to Daniel and begins to tell him these visions that are about to occur. And he begins to spill out things that will happen in the future. Now, there are a lot of things that we could look at, but I'm going to pick up in the middle of that visionary statement. Now I want you to turn to Daniel 11 
And I want you to look at verse 36 because most of Daniel 11 are about things that have already occurred in human history during the interim between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in the midst of making these statements that were still 600 years in front of Daniel that have already occurred, starting in verse 36, he starts speaking to events that have never occurred yet, that are still future to us. And we're introduced to a king again, the final king that will reign over planet Earth, at least secularly speaking. Look at verse 36. It says, then the king will do as he pleases. Now this king comes out of nowhere. He's not even been mentioned up until this point in chapter 11. In fact, everybody's been mentioned up until chapter 11 has been said that it was not a king. And suddenly this king appears. And he will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Now, because of what Daniel has said all throughout this book, this person, as he suddenly appears in chapter 11, should be familiar to us. If you've been here, if you haven't been here through the series, then this will be, you'll say, where is he coming from in this? But if you've been through us through the series in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and now here again, when he mentions this king here at the end who will magnify himself above every God, what should come into our minds if we've been going through this book together is this is this incredible world ruler that the Bible prophesies of, this king who, will, who is still future to us, who will one day reign over the whole earth. We call him the future Roman Caesar because he will come out of the same soil as the old Roman Empire. And he will rule over this earth. And as he's talking about here in verse 36, it says that he will magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things about the true God. Now remember, this world ruler is the one who enters into this holy alliance with this figure known as Antichrist. And they conspire together to enter into this covenant with the nation of Israel. And in the midst of this covenant, they promise Israel and the rest of the world peace. And they sign this peace pact with the nation of Israel to bring peace in the land which has never known peace, right? But suddenly, peace comes. And Israel is led shrewdly and deceptively into this peace covenant for three and a half of the years, as you remember on the diagram. But then in the midst of that three and a half years, what Israel discovers after three and a half years is what they signed was not a peace accord, but in many ways their own death certificate. Because trouble begins to break forth. And in this moment, the world ruler will not speak for the God of Israel like he had done at the beginning of the peace pact, but he will do like verse 36 says, he will now speak monstrous things against the God of Israel. And a great persecution and tribulation will be unleashed against Israel. Persecution we've talked about in that 70th week that's never come before or ever will. And as verse 36 says, he will prosper over Israel. That is, he will triumph. That's what the word literally means. He will triumph over Israel until this indignation is finished, till God brings it to a conclusion. Now, who is this world ruler? Well, in the next few verses, again, it just gives us some little tidbits about what he will look like. For instance, in verse 37, it says about this world ruler that he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. That is, the gods that, of his past, whoever those have been. Or for the desire of women. Now, what does that mean? Well, that can mean several things. It can mean he has no desire for women. 
Or it can mean that the desire of women, he will show no regard for. That's an old Jewish phrase. Dan mentioned it in Genesis 3. The desire of women, as he was speaking about moms, well, the desire of woman in Genesis 3 is for the Messiah. So he will show no regard for the gods of the past, nor for the God of Israel. Perhaps that's what it's talking about. Nor will he show any regard for any other God. And you know why? Because he will magnify, as it says in verse 37, himself above them all. Verse 38, but instead he will also honor a God of fortresses, that is a God of power. That's what he learn, yearns for, is power. A God, uh, verse 37, a God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures. And then it says, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. What does that mean? Well, most commentators think that this strongest of fortresses is where all the trouble of the earth will at that point center, where all the, the interest is, and that's in Israel, around Israel, the Middle East. And what he will do at this moment is that he will take action against that strong fortress with the help of a foreign god, probably a reference maybe veiled to Satan himself. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and he will parcel out land for a price. And this last phrase, he will parcel out land for a price, makes you think that somehow he will settle kind of the quarrel of Jew and Arab over this Middle Eastern land, but it will come at a price. And what is that price? Probably allegiance to himself. Those who give allegiance to himself, he will honor. And he'll settle that dispute for a time. But then look at verse 40. It all begins to unravel says, and at the end time, okay, now we're at, we know we're at the end because it gives us that. At the end time, it starts mentioning this volatility. It says the king of the, the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. In other words, all of a sudden, and I know these are kind of strange prophecies, but suddenly he says this peace pact, this accord, he's kind of settled everything with a price. But as we've learned, it all starts unraveling at the end. And it mentions the king of the south and the king of the north. We're not told who those people are, but we can imagine. We can imagine everything north of the Middle East, Syria, Russia, and those kind of things. We can imagine everything east of the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, you know, China, everything south, Egypt, everything to the west, we already know that's the old Roman Empire. That's his place. But they all get in this dispute over this one spot on planet Earth that seems to be a thorn in planet Earth even now. And that's the Middle East. And everybody begins to kind of invade that area. That's what it means there when it says, verse 41, he will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall. Then look at verse 42. Then he will stretch out his hand, this world ruler, against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But then there's rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many, and he will pinch his Pitch, his tents of his, or pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountains. That is, he's in Israel now. And then it says, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now Daniel said that all along, that in the midst of this great cataclysm, because that's speaking of Armageddon here. 
And all of a sudden the north invades and the east invades and he's troubled with the south and he comes into the beautiful land and they're all there in this great titanic last moment. And he is destroyed. Now let me just ask you for a second. I know that because we're jumping into that, it's kind of, your head may be swimming. But let me just ask you, just the things I said, does that sound far-fetched? Today, when you think about the world in which we live, that may have sounded far-fetched just 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, but does it sound far-fetched that suddenly there would be a trouble spot on planet Earth, a perpetual trouble spot, that suddenly would be inflamed after world rulers had worked so hard to negotiate peace there, and then it begins to unravel and all of a sudden people begin to invade and there's this explosive war at the end? No. It doesn't seem strange at all. In fact, it seems all too familiar to us and all too almost we're there. And that's what Daniel 11 is kind of hinting at. Now, people study this all the time and they keep coming to the same conclusion. There's something that's going to occur there that's going to bring everything to an end. Or is it an end? See, Daniel says that all this is occurring so that God can wrap up this portion of human life to commence a new portion. But he's got one specific portion in causing this tumult to occur, and that is he wants to bring Israel to her knees, to a place that she will reach out to her Messiah. And that's how the scene changes as suddenly you move into chapter 12. And look what happens there in chapter 12. It says, now at this time or that time, while all this trouble is going on, Michael, the great prince or angel who stands guard over the sons of your people Israel will arise. Now's the moment. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people, that is Israel, at this moment called Armageddon, everyone who is found written in the book, they will be rescued. Now that's so interesting because this whole world conflict has a purpose. And that is that purpose will be to shatter a nation who has resisted honoring the true Messiah all along. But at this moment, at a moment that they felt annihilation is coming, the whole world is invading at their place. And they think the whole world is gonna end on top of them. At that moment, they will be willing to bow the knee and for the first time to cry out to Jesus, their Messiah. And then it says that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Abrahamic covenant who promised Israel that they would come to know their God personally. God will remember his now purified people through this horrible event. And in this moment, he will rescue them. Now, Zechariah, another prophet, tells us what the people will do in this moment. At this moment of Armageddon with all the armies of the world around them, God will intervene. And here's what Zechariah says. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations. This is Remember that little diagram of Jesus coming to earth? That I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem in that moment. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will finally, that's the word I'd like to put in there in the parenthesis, so they will finally look on me. And who is me? The one whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for, and it's interesting, an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Then it says, 
And in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will finally call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And thus, it says at the end of verse 1 of chapter 12, they will all be rescued. That's how human history, as we know it, comes to an end. But then I want you to know that that's just simply the commencement of a new beginning. I want you to look at verse 2. It says, and many of those who are asleep, at this moment that God is bringing all this about by coming to earth, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, I'm speaking from the Old Testament, they will awake these to everlasting life. I mean, here is a resurrection, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Remember the diagram I showed you? Let's put it back up there. What we're saying is, is that at this moment, when Israel's crying out to the one whom they have pierced, as those people are receiving their Messiah, all those great Old Testament saints of old, David, Abraham, Rachel, Rahab, Jacob, those who've been asleep, their bodies have perished, they've been in the ground, they will rise up with the New Testament saints together in that rapture and resurrection. It won't just be New Testament saints joining the Lord as He comes to earth. It'll be the Old Testament saints as well, all gathered together to come and start together a new world, it says, of righteousness in this moment while the people of Israel is calling out to their Messiah to be saved. The resurrection of the Old Testament righteous and the New Testament righteous together. But now here's the point. But at that moment, human history at this point, as they come to earth, as Israel receives her Messiah, human history will not end. It will not end. This won't be an end. It's not a bloody end. But with the resurrection of the saints, what you have is the great commencement of a new world order. The ruthless rule of man is over. But now what you experience is the righteous rule of Jesus Christ on earth. As I said, some believe that to be the millennial kingdom. I do. Of a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Some say, no, it's just the beginning of the new heavens or new earth. But as I said, regardless of your persuasion, it's a new world order that occurs. Look at verse 3. It says, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many of, to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What does that speak of? You see, you no longer have now a great tribulation. What you have is just a comment on those who are entering into this new world order. And as they enter into this new world order, it's suddenly a kingdom of rearranged values. See, it says that the righteous have been raised. The new world order has come. The new kingdom is now established. But now all the values have been changed. Remember, now we're in a new paradigm of existence. Not this one. You've got to take yourself out of this one where we honor power and prestige and beauty and things of that nature. But now we're in a new world order. And Jesus always said, you know, He always reminded us, you know, in my world, 
The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And I want you to live that way, knowing that that's what's coming. Don't get caught up in the other, because the true values will be extended for eternity. And so what he does in verse 3, and this is why I want you to look at verse 3 again, he's mentioned this resurrection, and he says, after that occurs, those who have insight, those will be the ones who will really be the stars. See that? I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. They're the ones that are going to shine brightly. Those who led the many to righteousness, they'll be like the stars forever and ever. Now, let me tell you, that's so important for us to hear because see, all the prophecy is leading us to have a perspective now, telling us what's coming. And he's saying, I want you to think about, really, if we had an application, here's the application. When you think about greatness, what do you think about? When you think about great people, what do you think about? Alexander the Great, Caesar, Napoleon, Lincoln, Churchill, Shakespeare. What names come to your mind when you think of greatness? See, verse 3 says, let me tell you who's going to be great in this kingdom. And he selects two, two people to think about, or two kinds of people. The first, if you'll notice verse, there, uh, verse 3 there again, just underline it, those who have insight. Actually, literally in Hebrew, here's what it says, those who give insight. Spiritual insight. If you want to think of who's going to be great, it's going to be those who've given spiritual insight to others. That's where greatness is going to be found in this kingdom. And then secondly, notice those who lead many to righteousness. Those who in this life led many to righteousness. Those who help people find what righteousness is all about. Those who help people discover that life is really spiritual. Those who helped others discover that the center post of history was Jesus Christ himself and helped them possess his truth in their lifestyles. He said, if you want to know who the greats of eternity are, there they are. Those are the ones who will shine like stars forever and ever and ever. And you know what their names are going to be? They're not going to be Sir. It's not going to be Mr. President. Probably those names in eternity are going to be names like this. Mom. Dad. Uncle Billy. My learning center teacher. My community group leader. Oh, what's his name? I can't even remember what his name was back there who came and spoke at that meeting one night and gave me insight into what life's all about and changed my life. I can't even remember who he was, but I know I was different when I left. Those people who got around me when my marriage was struggling and they gave me insight into how I make my marriage work or how to raise my boy or encourage me in, in a moment in my life when I was going through a kind of a life crisis of purpose I had, I'd worked hard and I had everything, but in the midst of having everything, I discovered I had nothing. And I wondered, what do I do with those feelings? And suddenly God just in his own sovereign way brought people in my life and kind of into that vacuum began to speak to my heart and help me understand what life's really about and where I could use my gifts and talents in a way that would give me not only a deeper sense of satisfaction, but an eternal purpose. Those are the ones who are going to shine in the kingdom. Because that's where everything's moving. That's what it's going to commence to be and become, regardless of what it looks like here. That's what he's telling us about prophecy here. Ordinary names, yes, but powerful names in the next world. 
Well, that kind of, in a sense, you could almost shut the book on the book of Daniel at this point. You could close it and say, that's really what he's been talking to us about. Kind of helping us summarize everything. He's putting all this stuff together at the end. But then right at the very end, he starts adding some tidbits. And I want to just look real quickly at those tidbits before I close this out here this morning. And that is starting in verse 4. He begins to introduce some other things. He begins to tell us what kind of the end of the age is going to look like. Look at verse 4. He says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal them up in this book until the end of time. And at the end of time, here's what I want you to know. Many will go back and forth. If you want to know what the signs of the kind of the end of the age are, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So he says, you know, just so you'll know, that's what it's going to feel like. Now, this is Daniel in a place where people drove around in carts. All right? And it wasn't until 100 years ago that we invented the steam engine that man could even begin to kind of move around a little quicker. But he says here that at the end of time, many will go back and forth. They will go back and forth. They will be highly mobile. You know, last year, a billion people flew in planes all over the world. In the year 2010, there'll be two billion people flying in planes all over the world. We are an incredibly mobile society. When I grew up as a kid, the furthest my mom and dad ever went was to Florida on a vacation. You know, once or twice during our growing up years. And I think about myself and I think about you and where we go, where our kids have gone. My kids have gone around the world and they're not even out of high school yet. We're an incredibly mobile society. He says that's part of what kind of the end feels like. And he also, he says, you want to know another thing about the end, Dan? Just a little tidbit. I'm just going to drop it out there. Just a little morsel. Knowledge will increase. The New Testament picks that up. It says knowledge is going to just expand. I, you know, I, when I was... Uh, freshman in college reading that, I thought, what is he talking about here? A few years ago, when people started using this term information age, started finally making sense a little bit that, you know, we move from an industrial and information age, and all of a sudden we're just drowning in knowledge. Roger Selbert, who is a uh, futurist, makes this statement about knowledge. Think about all we know. He says in the year 2015, he says, what we now have and know as knowledge will only be 3% of what we'll know in the year 2015. Everything in human history will only make up 3% of the knowledge base of what we'll know in the year 2015. Knowledge is definitely going to increase, and those are kind of signs of the end. Another tidbit that he throws out occurs in verses 5 through 7. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing on this bank of the river. Now he's back to this vision and the other on that bank of the river, and one said, and all of a sudden, and one said to the man dressed in linen, there he is again, this humongous figure standing over this whole event of the waters of the river. And he asked the question, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, in other words, he's standing above these waters, and he raises his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by himself who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. So he just once again says, listen, all this that brings human history to a close is three and a half years. Time, one, times two, half time. Three and a half years. He just, in a sense, reasserts that thing that this is going to occur for three and a half years. And then he says, in verse 7, he says, and as soon as the, the, they finish the shattering, the power of the, holy, the, of the holy people, that is Israel, all these events will be complete. In other words, he just reaffirms the purpose of the tribulation. 
It's all to shatter the pride of the holy people Israel and to bring them where they want the Messiah. And then look at verse 10. He says, and what will happen out of that is many of Israelites will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. They'll know me. They'll know me. And then he concludes with two last tidbits about time. He says, in the time that the regular sacrifices is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And that's an odd figure. It's nowhere used. I just want you to know, just to give you this at the end. It's never used anywhere else in the Bible, 1,290 days. 1,260 is used over and over again because that's three and a half years, right? But he says there's this 1,290 days. What is that? Well, most think of that 30 days is when Jesus Christ comes with His saints that it's kind of a time of cleansing. A time in which the world is kind of readjusted, recalibrated. And rather than that abomination that had occurred in the holy place where the world ruler had set himself up to be God, the temple is destroyed, that ruler is destroyed, but in its place is kind of the living Lincoln Memorial. It's Jesus Christ who will reign. There's that kind of time of cleansing for 30 days. But then it mentions another 45 days on top of that. Verse 12, it says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. <laughs> what is that? Well, remember on the diagram, I've, I think those, those extra 45 days, Dan mentioned this in a sermon months ago, it's a time of awarding the saints because God comes, it says in the book of Revelation, as the book closed, closes, it says, behold, I am coming and my reward is with me. So here you got this planet with this now new living king and this new world order and those who've lived faithfully in the past are now rewarded for what they have done in this incredible award ceremony. Paul even mentions that in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, you know, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And then he says this, because sometimes we read this and I don't know what we think, but this is what I think it thinks, he thinks. He says then in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It's a personal award ceremony for all that's gone before to commence all that will now go on forever and ever. Then there's verse 13, the concluding verse. He says, But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at this end of the age. In other words, Daniel, let me just tell you, finish up the book, close it up, let it deliver its truth to later generations. But you just need to go your way expecting these things to happen. Now Daniel finished out his life in captivity. Did you know that? And he died a prisoner. He didn't experience any of this glorious truth personally. But as he closes up after he's seen the future, the angel just simply reminds him, Daniel, even though you will die a captive, you will rise a free man. And when you rise a free man and the values have all been rearranged in this new coming world order, you will be allotted your portion. You will be awarded on that day as well. Incredible story, isn't it? You know what's hard about the story? is it presents all this stuff. It tells us all these things that are coming, 
but then it kind of closes and we're left to have to decide how we want to live. Whether we want to believe the old world order in which we live, or whether we want to say, this is really where it's moving, so I need to back up from that place that we're all going to, and I've got to decide if I'm going to change my values and alter my course and my interest and everything to fit that which will last forever. You know where the rubber meets the road in that? It meets the road when Dan Gerald stands up and says, open your bulletin, and as you know, we're transitioning into common cause. And there's some of you who are in season of life and you've been told that the whole purpose of the church is to move you to a place where you have a ministry, where you make a difference. Now listen to these words. Where you give insight to others and you lead the many to righteousness. And you're right at that transition point. And you've got to decide, do I want that value system? Or do I just simply want to say, okay, put me in a group and let me exist for a while so I can continue to practice the old values that are really passing away. It's the same thing when we come to the end of the year and we say, you know, we want to move into kind of a new expression of the church and moving out to the community. And to do that, we want to give portions of money away. But to give portions of money away means I have less money. <laughs> That's where the rubber meets the road. But if I believe in a coming kingdom, a new world order, then I don't mind giving the money away. It's the same thing when we announced Carl Clausen leaving us and there was kind of a collective moan in the audience because we love Carl. But see, if we think about where Carl's going and what Carl's going to do in revitalizing a church in Anchorage, Alaska, and that we get to partner with him in that so that he can give the insight to many and lead the many to righteousness, then letting go of Carl is not a sad thing. It's an exciting thing. Because we're trying to move ourselves into the stream of where human history is really going to a kingdom that will not end. And see, for many of you, maybe here today, those things are important, but the most important thing is the values you're going to choose tomorrow morning. Because you can say, oh, oh, this is so interesting, all these things coming in. But they're not interesting if you can't back up and adjust your life in light of the truth you've been given. The world's not ending. The world's just transitioning. That's all it's doing. And the question is, will you make the transition early so you'll be ultimately and eternally relevant when the end does come? That's what all this is about. It's finally and finally your decision. Let's pray together. Father, this book has um, really been challenging, especially to preach it from the pulpit with um, all the tidbits and insights and metaphors and figures of speech and vision that have been packed into this book. But Father, we pray now as we consider it and consider what you say about human history, 
And what you say about where life on this planet is moving. Lord, my prayer for my brothers and my sisters here is that we would not see this as just idle talk or vain imagination or just interesting ideas. But what we understand is here's a man who bet his life on it. And the God of heaven says, and you'll rise and you'll be rewarded your allotted portion. Father, we need, we need to adjust. And I pray that this morning as we think about our lives, we would see that what's been given to us in life is a sacred trust with eternal ramifications. So Lord, give us wisdom so that we'll decide wisely in light of these prophetic truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.